I'm Steve Donovan, the Director of Alumni Relations at Trinity College. We hope you're well and that your summers are off to a good start, uh, despite the trying times we are living in. Thank you for joining us tonight for another in our series of virtual long walk presentations. We took a little bit of a break over the holiday period and are happy to be back with another star faculty member and a timely topic. We look forward to bringing you additional programming throughout the summer and encourage you to keep sharing your suggestions for additional topics and speakers from the Trinity community. Just email me at steve.donovan at trincall.edu. As many of you know, these presentations are recorded and archived on the Virtual Long Walk website, so you can watch them at your own convenience. And if you prefer to take them with you to the beach or to the pool as you travel, they are also now available as audio files on the college's SoundCloud account. Simply search the web uh, or the Trinity website for virtual long walk and you'll find them all. Now to tonight's program. It's a pleasure to not only present a talented Trinity faculty member, but also to spotlight an impressive current student who works closely with Professor McMahon and has agreed to moderate tonight's session. Maura Thompson is a rising senior from Shelburne, Vermont, and is pursuing her degree in political science and religious studies. Next year, she will be writing her thesis, this is a long one, so hang on, mm -hmm. uh, on the rise of the evangelical religious right within American politics through historical analysis of varying presidential campaigns. Outside of the classroom, if she has any time for that next year, Maura is the president of the Trinitones Acapella Group, a tour guide for the admissions office, and a member of her sorority, the Stella Society. She is interning for Practera, an educational technology company as a research intern this summer. And she's also doing political science research for Professor McMahon. It's now my pleasure to turn the program over to you, Maura. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you everyone that's here. It's intending alumni, parents, students. We are so, so happy to have you here. And we are also very excited to give you this talk today. Joining us today is Professor McMahon. Um, he will be giving us a talk about the notable decisions put forth by the Supreme Court during its 2019-2020 term, the varying judicial issues in the upcoming election and the place of the Supreme Court in our polarized democracy. Um, a little bit about Professor McMahon before we get started. So he earned his PhD from Brandeis University in 1997. Um, he spent um, time as a graduate student teaching in Russia with the Civic Education Project for two years. Um, most of his research has focused on the presidency and the political origins and consequences of Supreme Court decisions. Um, Professor McMahon has written an award-winning book titled Nixon's Court, His Challenge to Judicial Liberalism and Its Political Consequences. And he's currently in the process of writing another book entitled Uncertain Legitimacy, the Supreme Court in the Age of Trump. Um, today, uh, he is the John R. Reitmeyer Professor of Political Science and the Director of the Graduate Program in Public Policy at Trinity. Um, just a little bit about how this talk is going to go. Um, I'm going to give the floor over to Pro Professor McMahon, and then following that, I'm going to um, moderate a Q&A. Uh, we have some pre-submitted questions, and we're also going to open up the floor to anyone who has any questions that may arise during the talk. So feel free to submit any of those down in the chat um, bar right down below at the bottom of the screen. Um, so feel free to put your questions down, feel free to put your year um, if you're an alumni um, or your affiliation with Trinity, just so 
we can get to know each other. Um, but I have spent a lot of time with Professor McMahon, both in class and doing research with him, and I can't speak highly enough of him. Um, but I know you didn't come to hear me talk, so I'm gonna send the um, mic over to Professor. So whenever you're ready, go ahead. Well, thank you. Um, thanks, Mara, that was great. Uh, and for all those out there, Mara's a great student, as you can see, it's a pleasure to have her in class. Um, thanks all of you for attending. It's, uh, it's an interesting time for the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, June and July is often when we get the most important decisions and uh, that happened <clears throat> again this year, a little later than normal, but probably because probably they were off session for a bit um, uh, because of coronavirus. But uh, we now have them all and uh, we can talk about some of them. Um, but first, I want to take us back to two years ago. And two years ago was when Justice Kennedy was retiring from the bench. <clears throat> and as you may recall, this was a momentous event. Justice Kennedy was the so-called swing justice, meaning he sat at the ideological middle of the court, uh, and he had for many years uh, when there were 5-4 decisions. Uh, particularly on the most pressing social issues like abortion and school prayer. Uh, he was often the fifth vote uh, and often joining the liberals uh, in, in those decisions. And once he retired, um, a number of analysts, uh, you know, sort of predicted what would happen next. Uh, I'll focus on Jeffrey Tubin, well known to anyone who watches CNN or, or reads The New Yorker. Uh, Jeffrey Tubin said that in 18 months, uh, Roe v. Wade would be gone. He said Roe, Roe v. Wade was doomed. He predicted that um, 20 states would make abortion illegal. Uh, and he, he also said things like uh, affirmative action would be gone. Uh, the court would be much more productive of things like uh, like Second Amendment rights. Um, and obviously it's now 24 months after that event. And my first question, I guess, or what I'm trying to get at, at least uh, first part of this talk is, why was Tubin wrong? And, and I guess, how is he wrong? Is he wrong just in the timing or is he wrong long-term that the court is not going to be as conservative as, as he was uh, suggesting? Um, now, to, to get at this, what, um, we need to obviously focus on Chief Justice Roberts. So I'm going to share my screen right now. As you can see, there's Chief Justice Roberts, right? He's uh, been Chief Justice since he was appointed to the court by George W. Bush in 2005, uh, replacing uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist, whom he served as a clerk. Um, and the next, the next slide here is, um, is the ideological ideologies of the Supreme Court justices, just to give you a sense of, of where they sit um, on the ideological scale. Now this is from 538, this was just published, I believe today, but this research is based on two political scientists, Andrew, uh, Martin and Kevin Quinn, um, and they've been doing this for a long time. Now, it is a analysis of the 
justices as a whole, right? Now, so keep in mind, and, and some of these are somewhat questionable sometimes, what's coded as a conservative vote, uh, we might dispute that, but it, um, and also uh, for political purposes, certainly some decisions are far more important than others. Some are, um, you know, virtually, in, in, mo most are virtually insignificant for political or electoral purposes. But what you see here is, um, you know, uh, not surprisingly, um, for those of you who follow the court at all, um, Justice Thomas has, has, ever since he joined the court, has been the most conservative member of the court. Uh, Justice Alito, the, the, next, um, the next most conservative. Um, and then you see Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh just on the court for two terms. And this yellow line, this line that I've, I've highlighted, is the so-called swing vote. Um, and that was held by Kennedy for many years, as you see. And then once, actually at, at the very end of Kennedy's term, he, he and Roberts basically overlapped. Uh, and since then, Roberts has, has been uh, the swing justice. The, the four liberals are obviously uh, down here um, on the bottom. And, and the, the way this is set up is the ideological middle is said to be zero, and uh, the farther you get away from that, um, you know, the more conservative you are in terms of the positive uh, side of the scale and the negative side, uh, you are more liberal. So as you can see, uh, Justice um, Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts is very close to the middle. Um, he's become a little more uh, moderate over his time in the court um, at, at the very beginning, as, as this, as, uh, this writing says, uh, him and Alita were very close to each other. They were appointed at the same time. Um, and what's going on here, right? So how can we sort of understand him and the role that he's playing here? Um, so there's a number of ways to, to understand um, and, you know, Social conservatives in particular are particularly often question, you know, why they haven't succeeded in pushing the court in, let's say, overturning Roe, right? O Roe was um, decided in 1973. Republican presidents have appointed 14 of the last 18 justices. They've, they've appointed 10 of, of those justices since the Roe decision was decided. Um, so, you know, despite all these appointments, all these electoral victories at the presidential level, um, oftentimes with the Republican Senate, you know, why do they not succeed in, in doing things like overturning Roe? Um, one way of looking at this is just by focusing on ideology. So, uh, individuals in political science like Martin and Quinn are called attitudinalists. Uh, and the argument that they make is basically uh, that justices uh, rule based on their ideology, right? And what you see here is that uh, John Roberts is just not as conservative as, as uh, somebody like um, Clarence Thomas. Uh, he's not that committed to the conservative cause. 
And there's certainly some evidence about this within the Bush White House when he was chosen. He was not the most uh, conservative finalist on, on the list of finalists. Um, Bush sort of went back and forth on who to choose. He ultimately uh, had a very good meeting with Roberts. Uh, and then he had a conversation with a, an attorney who was working for him. And based on that conversation, at least the way Bush tells it, he decided um, that he would choose Roberts. Uh, he thought that Roberts would be a, 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 the best leader of the finals. By the way, that attorney that he spoke with was Brett Kavanaugh. So uh, things tend to come around, right? Um, another way of looking at this is um, the so-called so strategic model. If you're a reader of the New York Times, you and you read uh, articles uh, about the court, you will often see Lee Epstein quoted. Uh, she's a political scientist at uh, Washington University, uh, and she is a proponent of the strategic model. Certainly informed by the idea that justices decide on ideology, but sometimes it's not purely ideology, right? That sometimes they will make a strategic calculation, um, the delay uh, a decision that would further their own ideological interest uh, for a variety of reasons. Now, the most prominent reason why um, Justice Roberts has been said to maybe play this role of not being as conservative as, as uh, some suggest is this institutional idea that he has a, as Chief Justice, uh, he has a concern about the place, the legitimacy of the court. Um, this, is, this is one of the explanations for why he upheld the uh, Obamacare um, legislation, um, why he may have decided on, in the, in the Louisiana abortion case from this year, um, uh, upholding that law as opposed to striking it down that that decision, that law was, was very similar to a case from 2016 out of Texas, uh, and, and Roberts didn't want to overturn a decision that was only four years old, right? Now, he had dissented in that Texas case, so, you know, we knew where he stood with regard to the, that type of legislation, but, but the idea of overturning uh, a, a Supreme Court decision in, in such a short period of time on such a divisive issue uh, suggests that the court is very political. And he has, he's somebody who has resisted that idea, really rejected that idea that the court is, a, is as political or partisan as many people assert. So that he may be, you know, he may at some point be, um, that Tubin might be right. He might deliver this end of row, but not now, right? It's the middle of an election. It's a very divisive election. This is a very divisive issue. The court often doesn't uh, reach uh, these uh, very dramatic decisions in the middle of a presidential election year. Uh, on top of that, the court has been at the center really of the last two elections. Um, in 2016, uh, you'll recall Justice Scalia had, had died in February of 2016. Um, President Obama had appointed Merrick Garland. The Republican Senate refused to consider Merrick Garland, uh, so there was an open seat. Uh, so the court was in, uh, at issue there. And then in 2018, 
uh, right before the, the midterm elections, uh, the Senate confirmed, again, very close, very controversial vote, uh, confirmed Brett Kavanaugh. So these may be some of the reasons why you might, you might delay. Um, and then, you know, um, you know, another argument might be that it's the law, right? He's, he's committed to um, the precedent. He's committed to the notion of stare decisis, let the decision stand. Uh, and he's not going to, um, he's not going to be influenced by, you know, the political winds that are, that are underway. Um, now, some of these, depending on which, which you find more convincing, would suggest that Tubin is not going to be correct, right? That the court will not uh, overturn Roe versus Wade or push in this very conservative direction. Uh, and others uh, suggest that, that he might, uh, that, that the court might do that, but the timing just isn't right. Um, I guess the, the, the other issue I wanted to highlight before I, before I sum up is, um, is the role of the court in this upcoming election. I mentioned that the court has been an issue, uh, a really a central issue in, in 2016 and 2018. What role will it play this year? Um, if, and let me just show you, uh, again, I'll share the screen for a second, show you what, why, why the court was significant in 2016. Um, so this is an exit poll from the presidential race. Uh, people were asked, in your vote, were Supreme Court appointments the most important factor, an important factor, a minor factor, or not a factor at all? And as you see here, 21% of all respondents said that they were the most important factor. And 56% of those voters uh, supported Donald Trump. Only 41% supported Hillary Clinton. And the next one, uh, an important factor, is uh, is closer. Um, but you know that that uh, that first question is is trying to get at enthusiasm on this issue, right? Is it a deciding factor? And indeed, when when Donald Trump as president it introduced um, introduced Neil Gorsuch um, as his first appointment to the court, he said uh, the Supreme Court issue. Uh, decided the election in his favor, right? That millions of people went to the polls to support him because of this issue. I don't think the court is gonna be that much of an issue this time. Um, there may be um, some role in the conversation of the campaign as Joe Biden, you know, uh, raises concern about what the court might uh, become, particularly since Ruth Bader Ginsburg is 87 years old and Stephen Breyer is 81 years old. Um, so it, uh, it will certainly be there, but I, I don't think it will be as much of a centerpiece uh, as it was, um, you know, last presidential election. So I'll stop there and then I can, we can open it up for, uh, for questions. And so Moore is going to ask those. Thank you. That was awesome. That was a great talk. We really appreciate it. Um, I'm going to move forward now with the Q&A. 
Again, please feel free to submit any questions that you have in the chat bar down below. Um, I'll try to get to as many as possible. Um, I'm gonna start with the pre-submitted questions and then we'll work our way from there. And also a reminder, if you wanna submit a question, feel free to put in your year, your affiliation with Trinity, so for fun. All right, so first question is by Aiden Dumas of class of 2020. In this climate, could we expect to see calls for a more democratically appointed Supreme Court or an increase slash decrease in its power given its influence? Yeah, so um, there, are, there are often calls for the court to be transformed or to, to have less power, less influence. You know, it, it's, it's a bit strange that the argument goes that, that for a nation that is so proud of its democracy, uh, that nine unelect, unelected justices who serve for life uh, have such influence, right? So, so that's, that's, um, that's a consistent concern that, that many have. Um, how it would change, the most popular way to change the court is not necessarily to elect it. Um, some states elect their, their judges and that, that poses a, a whole, whole nother set of issues. Um, but really to, to shorten the terms, right? As opposed to having a, a, um, a life tenure, the, the most popular one is an 18 year, year term. That means every justice would um, serve for quite a long time. 18 years is far longer than obviously presidents and um, many members of Congress. Um, and it would guarantee that you would have a new uh, justice being appointed every every two years, right? If you stayed at nine. Um, and this would allow presidents to uh, have, an, have an impact, right? That, that each president in a single term would appoint two justices um, if everything went smoothly. And it would also, um, the, the game playing that goes on with sitting justices uh, would be significantly lessened, right? The, the, everyone knows, or I shouldn't say everyone knows, but uh, most people assume that if Hillary Clinton had won the presidency, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg would have, would have retired from the court. Um, um, and that is both, that is, that's not just specific to Ginsburg, that's that many justices play that role. Justice Scalia said he'd do the same thing. Obviously, uh, he ended up dying before he could retire from the court. So, so those types of reforms are more prevalent than, than um, you know, having something more small d democratic. Awesome, thank you. Um, next question is by James Kowalski of class in 1973. Has the court always played into such polarization? How can it be the final arbiter, uh, especially on hot button issues, without dividing us further? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing is that it hasn't, this court hasn't been as polarizing as if you compare, let's say, the, the U.S. Senate or the U.S. House of Representatives uh, or even the, the presidency. Um, it hasn't been that this is part of the criticism, right? That it 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 hasn't done things that, Je for example, that Jeffrey Tiedman was saying that he it's it's been pretty small C conservative in terms of how it's uh, decided on a bunch of issues. It certainly pushed the line. It's, I'm not saying that it you know it hasn't 
made it more difficult for women to obtain an abortion. It certainly has, um, but it hasn't gone as far as, you know, as it could. Awesome. All right. So I'm seeing a bunch of questions about Merrick Garland. So I'll just ask this, um, this question. James Shapiro, class of 81. Um, do you think Chief Justice Roberts is enough of an institutionalist with regard to the Supreme Court that he's willing to compromise his own personal views on the law, decide with the liberals on some very important decisions in order to avoid calls by some Democrats to take back Merrick Garland's seat by packing the court next year with an additional justice or two to break a tie? Yeah. Um... You know, I mentioned a little bit of the of his his role as a, a protector of the court, uh, the institutionalist idea uh, in the talk. So, um, in terms of Merrick Garland, I mean, the Merrick Garland case is you, you know is very interesting. It's um, there are not many times when there is a Supreme Court vacancy during a presidential year. The best comparison is back to 1960. Eight when uh, Chief Justice Earl Warren retired from the bench and, and uh, Lyndon Johnson sought to replace him uh, with a sitting justice, Abe Fortas, uh, and that was unsuccessful. Um, you know, I think you, in the end, what happened, you could, one could argue is that uh, certainly somebody like Mitch McConnell would make this argument that it, it's not that they stole the seat, but that they paused it right and then they uh then trump won the election and he was able to fill that seat um i yeah i don't see the the merrick garland as um problematic as some because i don't think um the senate the republican senate was going to confirm it right so even if they you know, invited him to have meetings in their offices, if they held hearings, if they had a debate, you know, if they had a full-on um, evaluation of him, uh, they were not going to, he was not going to be confirmed by that Senate. And you might, you know, people on the left have criticized Obama, President Obama, because he didn't choose somebody who was who was motivating, right? Who was a, um, a symbolic choice who might have had more electoral power. Um, he chose somebody that was, um, he thought might be more um, acceptable to the Republicans. And what ultimately ended up happening is that the Garland issue was not really discussed um, during the campaign. Awesome, thank you. All right, um, so we have a few questions by Robert Rodner, class of 64. Um, what is a reasonable expectation for a Supreme Court justice to be non-ideological in his or her decisions? I feel like you talked a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, you know, what, what's really interesting in terms of ideology is um, the expectation is that they're going to be very ideological, right? That uh, certainly the hope, uh, and you see this a little more on the Republican side, perhaps because they've had so many disappointments uh, in recent years. But um, the, the reason why Neil Gorsuch and uh, Brett Kavanaugh were on that list uh, that Donald Trump 
put out. He, he, neither of them was actually on the first list that he put out during the campaign. And then he put out another can, another list and Gorsuch was on it. And then the list was updated again after, after he was president. And, and that's when Kavanaugh's name appeared. But the reason why they're on the list uh, and the reason why you have people like Jeffrey Tubin um, making arguments about how they will vote or predictions about how they will vote is because uh, they are chosen because they're supposed to be very ideological, at least on they are expected to deliver. Um, and you know, this is what really bothers somebody like Chief Justice Roberts, that they, they shouldn't be seen, justices shouldn't be seen as sort of political pawns or, you know, bots bots a program to vote in a particular way, that, that they're there to be um, not simply a rubber stamp for what, you know, the, the appointing president wants, but to actually evaluate the case uh, and come to what they think is the right conclusion based on what a, a specific law says or what the constitution says. And, and so that's why I think you do get some um, surprising cases or su surprising results. To Particularly, you know, some of the more interesting cases are ones that that don't get the headlines. Um, one from the recent term is is the one out of uh, Oklahoma dealing with uh, uh, a Native American treaty, where you had Neil Gorsuch uh, joining the four liberals to decide uh, for the the Native American tribe. Um, you know, and and that's an example of where he's, you know, he's making a determination based on uh, what he, think it, he thinks is the right answer, uh, given the history of the case. Thank you. Um, all right, so uh, Robert Rodner's second question um, is um, very similar to Quanti Davis of class in 93, so I'm just going to ask them together because um, they're similar. Is being an originalist mutually exclusive from seeing the Constitution as a living document? That was Robert Rodner's question. And then Quanti Davis is, I'm only a casual observer to the Supreme Court. However, it seems that in nearly every opinion, the majority of dissenter writer often cites the framer's intent. It's impossible to know what the framer is truly intended. So um, doesn't this attribution really suggest that law is interpretive only and not grounded in solid factual discourse? Or is it that the cases that reach the Supreme Court level all tend to be interpretive in nature? Yeah, so um, the first part of that in terms of the originalist and, and, um, and the living constitution, the idea of a living constitutional constitution or aspirationalist is a, uh, you know, the term that we use in, in constitutional law to describe that, that idea. Um, Justice Scalia, who is certainly the most, or one of the most uh, important originalists, not only as a justice, but as a, as a law professor before he was selected by, by Ronald Reagan to be on the court. Uh, he always used to like to joke, he, he wanted a dead constitution, right? He didn't want a living constitution. So, um, so to some extent, if you, if you, if you take that and as somebody who was certainly important to this idea of, of original intent, um, that there is a there, there is a conflict there that you cannot um, be an originalist and and still have a, have a have a living constitution. At the same time, you know, originalists 
and then a, another brand of thinking is called textualist um, individuals who read the Constitution, um, you know, who focus on the, the the language of the Constitution, the actual words or or of the the statute that they're interpreting. Um, in, in that sense, uh, you can be a liberal textualist. Um, you know, one of the one of the original um, justice, one of the justices who began to focus on this idea of textualism, uh, Justice Hugo Black, who served uh, from the mid 1930s to the to the very early 1970s, um, was a textualist, but but for most of his career on the court was was a um, was quite liberal. Um, uh, you know, so for, for example, um, the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law, right? And then it has that string of, of, uh, of rights that, uh, that it's focusing on, religion, speech, press, assembly. Um, Black wanted to read that, that literally, that Congress shall make no law, right? Um, and, you know, so for example, when they were dealing with pornography cases in the 1960s, um, black, black would certainly highlight that. So that's a liberal result uh, in terms of how they viewed the pornography cases, uh, but, but doing it in a very, um, you know, textualist way as opposed to, as opposed to somebody who's trying to, to read words into the constitution, right? The alternative to that um, is another case in the 60s, the Griswold versus Connecticut case dealing with contraception. Um, Justice Douglas creates this right to privacy, right? Um, uh, and, and black dissent. So these are two great liberals on the court. Uh, at the, they, they're appointed for, in a very short space of each other, one in 1937, one in 1939. Both are very liberal, um, but one sees, sees um, this issue of the right to privacy uh, as, well, you can find a right to privacy within the Constitution, right? This idea of a li living Constitution. Uh, but Justice Black says, no, you can't, right? And he says, you know, I like my privacy just as much as the next guy, but we just can't create these ideas, right? So even within uh, the left or within the right, you, you, you have differing interpretations of the Constitution. Oh, sorry, and, and then Framer's intent, and Framer's intent goes to that as well. I mean, for, for example, in the 1930s with Franklin Roosevelt um, and his appointments, which included Douglas and, and Black, um, you know, they thought that their version of a centralized federal government was consistent with the Framer's intent. The difference was that they were dealing with a nationalized economy and when the framers wrote their words, they were dealing with a much more localized or state level economy. So, so the conditions had changed sufficiently for a different style of government, but they still felt that they were being true to the framers intent um, when they passed laws like, like New Deal legislation. Thank you, interesting. Um, so we have a few um, kind of questions about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So. We'll hit that. 
um, Robert Rodner asks, what will likely happen if Ruth Bader Ginsburg becomes incapacitated or heaven forbid passes away before the November election with a Republican majority Senate? And someone also asks if um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passes away prior to the 20 election, is it possible for the president to get anyone confirmed prior to the election? Um, so just two books. Yeah, I was reading something the other day that said never before in the country have so many atheists and agnostics prayed so hard for a 87-year-old uh, to, you know, to stay alive, right? So, um, you know, I think um, I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg will be fine, but uh, if she isn't, uh, there will certainly be efforts on the part of the Republican. Um, certainly Donald Trump, he will appoint somebody and, um, you know, attempt to use that as sort of a way to attract votes. Because um, certainly if there's any concern about Justice, Chief Justice Roberts and his move to the middle, um, the fact that another conservative um, will certainly make it easier for um, the conservatives already there on the court to you know, to advance their agenda. So he would certainly appoint somebody. I'm sure Mitch McConnell would try to, to uh, get that person confirmed. Uh, the problem is that you have, uh, you know, a fairly divided Senate and you have people like Susan Collins uh, up for, for re-election uh, in a very tight race. Uh, she's actually behind in the polls. So are there enough of those senators who are in close races uh, to vote for another conservative justice, um, you know, or will they, you know, try to use a vote against the nominee in order to, to gain votes, uh, you know, when voters go to, not to the polls this year, I think, to their mailboxes, right, to, to vote uh, on election day. Okay, interesting. Um, so we have a few questions also. Um, all right, about SCOTUS and the presidency um, in Trump. So Nancy Wilkes, class of 1974, what do you think the impact slash, per slash perception has been regarding Trump's assumption he can control SCOTUS? Um, obvious, complete disregard for the separation of powers. And then Paul Jones, class of 68, asks, please comment on the issue of raising the number of SCOTUS justices that has um, been raised recently. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, so in terms of, in terms of uh, the presidency and the court, um, my work tends to, to fall within what's called regime politics, um, model of thinking. And, and the argument there is that um, that presence can have an impact. So for example, my first book is on Franklin Roosevelt. And I argue in that book that um, ultimately, the subtitle of the book is how the presidency paved the road to Brown, as in Brown versus Board of Education. So I, I do think that presidents can move the court in a particular direction. Um, but it's not as straightforward and direct as, you know, as a president making a promise, a conservative president making a promise to get, appoint conservative justices 
who will then, once they get in, you know, do something like overturn Roe versus Wade. Um, that what what happens is that the the political regimes, um, you know, when and when I say that I'm I'm talking about a president and a senate in this case. Um, when they get in power, and especially if they're enduring regimes, meaning if they get, if you have that, if you have a dominance of a particular party, over time, given the way that uh, justices leave the court and, and the frequency in which they leave them, you can certainly move the court in a particular direction. But ultimately, the justices decide, right, um, in how that happens and what not necessarily what direction they're going to go in, but what that direction looks like, right? So Franklin Roosevelt appoints nine justices to the Supreme Court. One only serves for a year, so he essentially uh, fills eight seats. Um, but, and, and, and certainly the, the issue of race is, is not a centerpiece of his thinking, but he is interested in appointing liberals, right? Liberal right-centered individuals. And slowly but surely, they come around to making a conclusion that the Plessy Doctrine uh, should go away, right, in 1954. But it's 1954, it's nine years after FDR dies, right? So you can have movement, but it's not as rapid as, you know, somebody like Donald Trump has, has suggested. And the second question, I'm sorry, was, uh, oh, court, so, so the, the size of the court, the size of the court has changed um, back in the, in the 19th century. Um, it was 10 at one point, uh, seven at one point, I believe eight as well. Um, but it's been nine for a very long time. Uh, in, in the 30s, when, uh, again, back to Roosevelt, when he was elected, um, you know, he passed what was known as the first New Deal. Uh, the court struck most of it down. Uh, he was reelected overwhelmingly and then proposed this court packing plan, which would have expanded the court from nine justices to 15 justices, basically assuring him, you know, that his, uh, his new legislation, the so-called second New Deal, would uh, be, be declared constitutional. That was rejected uh, and, and pretty um, overwhelmingly rejected, um, in part because the court changed the, the terms of its, its uh, of its thinking, the so-called switch in time that saved nine, meaning that if not, if not for the switch that occurred, uh, the court would have been expanded. But I do think there, uh, even though the court is a political institution, um, and we know that, as I said earlier, that individuals are chosen because of, of what, the, what their perceived ideology is. Um, Ultimately, it, it's it's very difficult to sort of play with uh, the nat the nature of the court or the size of the court. That the concern is that if you expand, if Democrats get in and they expand it to let's say twelve, then once you know Republicans get in, they're going to expand it to fifteen, right? And and that that becomes uh, I think a a great concern. And so why 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 you can come up with arguments that, you know, that may be particularly convincing. You know, they stole the Merrick Garland seat, for example. Um, you know, I think ultimately, uh, even even people in the on the Democratic side are are somewhat cautious about that. 
All right, next question. Um, Bamika Chaudhary, Chaudhary, sorry if I mispronounced that one. Um, how would you describe the impact of the recent decision on the electoral college case on November elections? Yeah, in terms of the, um, the ability of, so this case dealt with whether or not uh, electors, um, so-called faithless electors, right? So electors are committed to voting for, in this case, either Joe Biden or, or Donald Trump uh, if he wins a state. So if he wins the state of, let's say Joe Biden wins the state of Connecticut as he's expected to do, one of those electors will say, no, I don't like Joe Biden. I'm going to vote for Bernie Sanders, right? Um, and most of the, then this has happened in the past, and most of the time it doesn't make a difference. But, you know, you can imagine uh, a situation, certainly how close our elections have been recently, where it would matter. Um, and the court said states could prevent uh, those electors from doing that. Um, you know, these electors are, are basically unnamed individuals. Uh, they're there to sort of play this role that the founders uh, created. The, the role is sort of uh, very formal. Uh, I don't think they should be making independent judgments that the people of Connecticut were wrong um, and that they, they prefer somebody else, I think. Uh, you know, I think that's the right decision. Um, Don Gallette asks, with the 18-year term reform idea, could justices be reelected? Um, you know, it's, it's a good question. Um, I think the thinking is that um, they wouldn't be elected, but they would be selected. Could they be selected again? Um, I've seen both. Um, I think the 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 notion is that you would get your chance. I mean, 18 years is a pretty long time, uh, and then you would be uh, you'd be done. But certainly, you know, there's ways of playing with that and to coming up with the best system. If you have you know a superstar uh, who's who's become a legend on the court, uh, why would you not want to to give that person another chance? Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe maybe that maybe there shouldn't be a term limit. Um, but I think most of the time, the idea that I've read, at least, uh, the way it's been proposed is that, you know, you do your time and then, uh, then you move on. Because the, the, the reason for that is um, there's always a concern with any type of term on a court. And in, the, the, in this regard, I'm looking to states uh, who some, some states have terms in which you can be renominated re for is does that justice sort of play to make decisions that will uh, make it more likely that he or she is reappointed, right? Um, as opposed to uh, making a decision, you know, more straight line down the line decision that if you don't have the opportunity to, to be reappointed, uh, that sort of um, strategy has taken away from you. Great, all right. Antonio um, Gurola of Class of 22 asks, to what extent do you think the modern politicization, excuse me, of the confirmation process compels presidents to choose more partisan ideologue justices? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, that's certainly, certainly Republican, you know, Republicans uh, have been very concerned with what's, what used to be called, and people who read the New York Times will, will be familiar with uh, the greenhouse effect. So the, the argument was that what happens, you know, I mentioned 14 of the last 18 justices were appointed by Republicans. Uh, many of those, or I shouldn't say many, but several of them uh, were expected to be conservative. Everyone really of, that, of those 14 were expected to be conservative and some became quite liberal. Um, you know, the most well-known individuals were uh, Harry Blackman, who was the author of the Roe decision, uh, and David Souter, um, who was appointed by George H.W. Bush, that they became more liberal. And it was called the greenhouse effect because the argument was that these were individuals who wanted to um, appeal to Linda Greenhouse, who, who was the longtime Supreme Court reporter for the New York Times, uh, now still writes for the New York Times on occasion. Um, and, and so what, what, what uh, conservative presidents have done is they've really tried to work very hard at choosing the right individuals. Uh, and, and what you have now is a very select group of people who are even possible to be considered for the court, right? You, certainly, if you're, if you're talking about conservatives, you have to be a member of the Federal Society. Uh, if you're a key participant in the Federal Society, that's important. We all know you can, you can go to any law school you want as long as it's Harvard or Yale, right? Everyone on the court has gone to either Harvard or Yale. Um, you have um, every uh, conserv conservative justice, um, there's a little hiccup in this, is, uh, is a Catholic. Uh, Chief Justice Gorsuch is an is a Episcopalian but was raised Catholic, right? So, um, there's a, there's the sameness, right? It's it's almost like a cookie cutter court uh, that you're choosing. You're just trying to find the right person. Why? Because you're concerned that if you don't find that right person, the next Scalia. That's he's a, he's always the model that's used. You find the next Scalia. If you don't find the next Scalia, you're going to end up not delivering on the promises that you made to your voters. All right. Uh, all right, I'm going to try to keep answering as much as we can. I'm going to try to sure. get to everyone's. Um, Mary Ambrose asks, assuming Joe Biden is elected, even if Ruth Bader Ginsburg were to leave the court, unless Mitch McConnell is not reelected, the court might have to operate with eight justices for an extended period of time. What is the maximum time the court could run with eight justices? I mean, conceivably, it could run for a very long time. Uh, you know, there was some, some I think Ted Cruz um, said that if Hillary were elected, um, they would keep the, the Scalia seat, you know, the Merrick Garland Scalia seat open until the next presidential election. That's never happened before. And I think there would be great pressure on the Senate, particularly, you know, senators from more, from bluer states. Uh, to bring forth a vote, you know, that they would align. I, I really think when, when you get into this sort of playing with Supreme Court seats, whether it's court packing or leaving a seat open for a very long time, there's only so long you can do that, right? So McConnell was able to do that, but he was able to do that because there was a presidential election. So he could say, and there was some support for that, again, with, um, 
1968 named Fortis, um, that he could say, well, let the people decide, right? That they know there's a seat on the court. Um, the people can go and vote for uh, either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton and make a determination. And that seat was profoundly important, right? Because if you, if you think about that chart that I showed you, the court, um, the, the swing justice has been on the conservative side of that chart. So um, uh, Martin and Quinn identified the ideology of justice as going back all the way to 1937. I just showed you, you know, a shorter version of that. Um, and since 19, I believe, 70, um, for pretty much every year, the swing justice has been on the conservative side of that ideological line. Um, if Hillary Clinton were elected and she was able to replace um, Justice Scalia's Justice Scalia with, you know, somebody, excuse me, somebody like uh, even Elena Kagan, who's you know, and or Stephen Breyer, the more conservative of the of the liberals, it would have been a much more liberal court uh, for the. It would it would have moved sig the court significantly uh, to the left if you again looking at that chart. So this was a a a very important issue. Hillary Clinton really didn't highlight it to the extent that she might have. And again, so, as I said earlier, some people criticize uh, President Obama, some people on the left criticize President Obama because he didn't choose um, you know, more strident liberal uh, for that seat uh, as opposed to choosing Merrick Garland. All right, Gail Martin, um, 75, class of 75. What effect do you think public opinion has on the Supreme, on Supreme Court decisions, i.e. legalizing gay marriage? By the time it happened, um, the public's opinion had really changed over the previous 10 years. Yeah, it's an excellent question. I mean, um, you know, obviously courts like to, to think that they're not, um, you know, they're not affected by public opinion, you know, that they just read the law and they interpret the Constitution. Um, but, but, you know, as Chief Justice Rehnquist once said, uh, the justices read newspapers too. Um, and it is, uh, you know, the, the same-sex marriage issue or gay rights issue is really um, tremendously impressive in terms of how much change has occurred uh, in a relatively short period of time, you know, at least by court standards. Um, in 1986, uh, the court decides uh, uh, um, in favor of Georgia against uh, the expansion of the gay rights in the Bowers versus Hardwick case. Uh, in, a, in, a, in a decision that is, you know, um, widely criticized by, by activists um, for gay rights, and in the space of, you know, we have Lawrence in 2003, and then we have uh, the gay rights decision, you know, about 10 years later. Um, and then the decision from, from this year dealing with the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Um, now, there, there may be some decisions to come uh, dealing with, um, you know, religious exceptions that, that might not be as favorable uh, to the gay, to, to gay rights activists, but, but, you know, I think that's one of the areas where public opinion has certainly mattered, um, that, that this is an issue that, 
in which the the, the American public has altered its, its views uh, quite dramatically, according to the polls. Uh, and there's really um, there's really I think um, it's it's understandable to to think that particularly some of the younger justices um, uh, would have you know would have, be influenced by by that. You know, in in the Bowers case, for example. Uh, Justice <clears throat> Powell, uh, um, who who ruled, who joined the majority, he was he was a, the swing justice at the time, uh, said he had never known a gay person. Right? Uh, it turned out that his clerk was gay. He just he just wasn't aware of that. But I'm sure you know most of these justices have lived their entire lives in places like New York and Washington or Cambridge, Massachusetts or Chicago, um, uh, or significant chunks of their lives in those places. Uh, so I think not only the public opinion, but you know, um, as, a, as one recent book on the Supreme Court has said, the company they keep, right? That the justices are influenced by the company they keep. So, so who they interact with um, becomes important as well. Awesome. I think we have time for one more question. Um, I'm sorry, I couldn't get to everyone's. They're all great questions. I wish I could, I wish I could get them all. Um, how do you think the COVID pandemic may affect the court's view of limits on government power or government healthcare legislation? Um, by question was by Ward uh, Kelsley, uh, class of 65. Yeah, that's a, another great question. I mean, as I'm, you know, thinking about my syllabi for uh, next fall and uh, well, I guess uh, in the January term, I'm thinking about how you know, these issues uh, that are raised with, with, the, with the coronavirus, um, you know, the wearing of a mask, do you have a freedom not to wear a mask? How, how stringent can governments be? Uh, you know, you really, it really raises a whole set of issues uh, that the court um, may have to deal with depending on on how long this is this goes on uh, there was one case out of California dealing with um, churches you know uh, you, you get into questions about not only free speech or is this, you know is not wearing a mask freedom of expression can churches stay open because because they are religious institutions protected by the First Amendment you know so um, you know it um, it will certainly uh, require uh, you know, the updating of, of syllabi across the country. <laughs> Great. Well, I think that's all the time we have. Perfect timing. Um, thank you so much, Professor McMahon. It was really thank interesting. You, really great. We really, really appreciate it. And also thank to everyone um, who helped put the talk together and also all the alums, students and families, parents, friends, um, all that who joined. Um, we really appreciate it. It was so great to see you all. Um, and I wish you all the best. Stay safe and enjoy summer. So thank you, everyone. Thank you.